Welcome to our Curious Travels, a tourist guide to dark travel destinations around the globe. Join us as we explore dark history and sites related to death and destruction. We hope we can get to know one another along the way. Our names are Fred and Steven, and we're from San Antonio, Texas. We're a couple who enjoy traveling the world, curious of the dark and often seldom told stories of history. Today, we are visiting one of the oldest cities in America, New Orleans. The city of New Orleans has existed since before the United States was even a country. There is no place like New Orleans. It transports you back in time. You can see that in the details of the architecture. When walking the streets of the city, the architecture makes a lasting impression. Many of the buildings and homes in New Orleans are living antiques. New Orleans offers stories of scandal, disease, murder, haunts, and the horrors of slavery. In our opinion, the best time to explore the city is early. While the streets may be nearly empty early in the day, they are haunted with the stories of generations past and the life and darkness that is intriguing and beautiful. We're excited to share New Orleans with you in two episodes. There is just too much to cover in one. Please join us for the journey. This ancient story has been told from generation to generation, often being changed and retold along the way. It is said that the Great Spirit made the world and all that is in it from its own body. In the beginning, there was nothing except for water, hiding the earth everywhere. The Great Spirit made fish and shellfish to live and dwell in the water then he told the crawfish to dive under the water and bring up the mud to make the earth. As soon as the crawfish had done this, the great spirit made man. He called the land and the man Chirimacha. The great spirit gave the Chirimacha laws to live by. For a while, all was well in the world. Then. The Chirimacha became careless and forgot the laws. The world was no longer good, and men did not care to live. The Great Spirit knew that something must be done. He thought and thought, and finally made tobacco and women. These he gave to the Chirimacha. The world needed light and heat, so the Great Spirit made the moon and the sun the two lovers however separated by space. The Great Spirit told them that they must bathe often in order to be strong enough to give off light and heat. The sun did what the Great Spirit said. The moon did not obey the order of the Great Spirit, taking no baths, and to this day the moon is pale and gives off no heat. The moon can still be seen chasing across the sky trying to get closer and closer to the sun with the love that has lasted throughout time. The land was loved for its abundant resources and its easy network of navigatable rivers, bayous, and bays. The indigenous people called the area Balbancha, land of many tongues. They were the original inhabitants of the land that New Orleans sits. 
We know from archaeology and historical accounts that just prior to colonization, there were settlements in the French Quarter near Conti and Charter Street, in the Lower Garden District near Orange and Constant Street, and at the mouth of Bayou St. John. The original indigenous tribes in the area were the Chirimacha, Aracapa, Caddo, Choctaw, Huma, Natchez, and Tunica. The Chitimacha tribe of Louisiana is the only Louisiana tribe to still live on a section of their original homeland, with the reservation located near the town of Charenton, approximately two hours from New Orleans. The other tribes were not as fortunate. They would be forced out of their native homes by settlers. Today, the black community in the city still celebrate the legacy of natives through a unique subculture. Mardi Gras Indians and their traditions date back to the 1800s when Native Americans helped hide runaway slaves. Mardi Gras Indian culture is influenced both by ancestral enslaved Africans and the friendship forged with Native Americans. These Mardi Gras Indians were seen dancing and celebrating in the street with colorful regalia during carnival seasons and throughout the year. You can learn more about Mardi Gras Indians at the Black Street Cultural Museum on St. Philip Street. The museum is community operated and they are happy to share their knowledge with curious guests. The museum also has an exhibit on jazz funerals. The city of New Orleans sprung from Europe's quench to colonize a new world and expand their vast empire. The French would first begin colonization of the Americas in Canada, and then eventually expand into Louisiana. However, Louisiana was not the same size as it is today. French Louisiana included most of the drainage basins of the Mississippi River, and stretched from the Great Lakes of the Gulf of Mexico, and from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains. French Louisiana was a district of New France under French control from 1682 to 1769 and 1801 to 1803. The area was named in honor of King Louis XIV by French explorer René Robert Cavalier Sir de la Salle. French Louisiana was sparsely populated, leaving it unable to protect and secure its borders. The French were not as interested in populating the land. They had interests that would allow for lucrative fur trading. The French would use Native Americans to help them grow their empire and often enslave them. Eventually, French Louisiana became part of the United States. After years of turmoil and temporary Spanish rule, the French leader Napoleon in 1801 decided to give up his plans for Louisiana and offered the entire territory to the United States for 15 million. The United States grew vastly after this purchase. Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne, Sieur de Bienville, founded the city on the first crescent of high ground above the Mississippi's mouth in 1718. Just a few years later, in 1722, a hurricane destroyed most of the new city, which was rebuilt in the grid pattern of today's French Quarter. French settlers built New Orleans on a natural high point along the Mississippi River about 300 years ago. The land beyond that natural levee was swamp and marsh that would not have been very habitable. It would take more than a hundred years for settlers to figure out how to drain the swamp dry for economic gain. In the process, they'd sink New Orleans. 
In a story from The Atlantic, Tulane University geographer Richard Campanella details how New Orleans was transformed from marsh to a city dependent on levees, canals, and steam-driven pumps. One French settler described the city 300 years ago as nothing more than two narrow strips of land, about a musket shot in width, surrounded by cane break and impenetrable marsh. Over the last 300 years, more than 30,000 acres were converted from swamp to dry land. The effort resulted in the gradual settling or sinking of land called subsidence. The transformation from swamp to suburbs has at times had dire consequences. In the 1970s, several homes in Metairie exploded when subsidence cracked gas lines, leaking flammable vapors into the homes. While more flexible pipes have lessened the risk of houses exploding in the future, subsidence has placed most of New Orleans below sea level and at an increased risk for the next storm. However, the city of New Orleans has often faced this kind of turmoil over its more than three centuries. The French Quarter is testament to the turmoil of this rich city. It's the oldest neighborhood in the city, and it's seen everything from pirates, murderers, rampant disease, vampires, voodoo, prostitution, and fire. The French Quarter dates back to 1718. For about 70 years, the French Quarter was all that existed of the city of New Orleans. As the city grew, suburbs sprang up when nearby plantations were subdivided by owners anxious to take advantage of the expanding real estate market. Originally, buildings in the French Quarter were constructed of wood, which quickly decayed in the damp, swampy surroundings. Today, only one French colonial building remains, the 1750 Ursuline Convent, now the archive of the Catholic Archdiocese of New Orleans. It's also a museum that you can tour. The grounds are beautiful. We definitely recommend a visit when visiting the city. It's rumored to be haunted. There's also vampire lore associated with this building. But we'll get into that the next episode. In 1788, the mostly wooden French Quarter was destroyed by a fire. It took just a short five hours for the blaze to take over the city, destroying the prized homes of the city's wealthy socialites, business people, politicians, and generals. By the next morning, the blaze had destroyed 856 out of the 1,100 standing structures in the city, well over three quarters of the city's area. Another smaller fire happened in 1794. After the fires, Spanish authorities initiated new regulations to prevent the spread of fire. Spanish building codes included the use of protective plaster on exterior walls and fire-retardant roofing, like slate and tile, which helped give the French Quarter a more Spanish appearance than French. In the late 18th century, substantial buildings like the Cabildo, Presbyter, and St. Louis Cathedral were erected. They were indicators of the city's prosperity. The French Quarter also became more closely built, and its distinctive courtyards began to form as properties were walled in. Hand-forged wrought iron were introduced in the 1790s, but it was expensive and limited to large, costly buildings. 
In the 1830s, mass-produced cast iron was introduced, less costly than wrought iron and delicate and precise in design. It took Victorian New Orleans by storm and helped the French Quarter obtain its stunning appearance that it still boasts today. Wealthy residents eventually moved out of the French Quarter and into the suburbs, and plantations which offered more land and lush gardens. The movement would create impoverished conditions in the Quarter. In the 1920s, anthropologist and novelist Oliver Lafarge described the French Quarter as a decaying monument and a slum as rich as jambalaya or gumbo. Most of the French Quarter's elegant buildings had been divided into tenements rented to the poor, notably Sicilian immigrants who made up 80% of the resident population in 1910. Artists and writers began to move into the area. Attracted by the cheap rent, faded charm, and attractive street life, the French Quarter of the 1920s caught the attention of visitors. Aspiring historic preservationists, and commercial revitalization that turned the area into the tourist destination that it is today. However, during this time, gentrification eventually drove out many of the working artists and writers who had desperately helped to revive the area. The French Quarter before the Civil War was also home to the largest slave market in the United States, ultimately serving as a site for the purchase and sell of more than 135 thousand people. In 1808, Congress erected its constitutional prerogative to end the legal importation of enslaved people from outside of the United States. However, slavery was not abolished till 1864. Slavery is a stain that still haunts the city today. In fact, one of the most horrific stories told in the city is that of Marie Delphine de la Larie, a slave owner who was rumored to be particularly harsh with her slaves. Her story caught the creative side of American Horror Story as it created a fictional story about her and the voodoo queen of New Orleans, Marie Laveau. The real story of Madame la Larie and Marie Laveau does differ from the Hollywood version. In 1831, Madame Delphine de Lalaurie and her husband purchased the lots on Royal and Hospital, now Governor Nichols, which would eventually become the haunted Lalaurie Mansion. Soon after, the marriage between the two would be in question. On November 16, 1832, Delphine Lalaurie petitioned the courts for a separation from the bed and board of her husband. She claimed that her husband had treated her in such a manner as to render their living together insupportable. She also claimed that he had beaten her in front of witnesses. Five months later, Dr. Lalaurie acquiesced and consented, moving permanently to his newly acquired residence in Plaquemines Parish. On April 10, 1834, a fire broke out inside the home of Delphine Lalaurie and her estranged husband. The stories and embellishments grew over time, but the immediate reports and eyewitness accounts are horrifying and atrocious. Seven slaves were rescued from deplorable conditions, their bodies covered with scars and loaded with chains. They were taken out on stretchers and delivered to safety at the Cabildo, while a mob proceeded to destroy the furnishings of the home in outrage. Judge Jacques-Francois Canange was a neighbor of the Lalauries and one of the first to arrive at the fire. 
Some of the early arrivals began to help the Lollaries transfer their valuables to safekeeping in case the fire started to spread from its originating place in the kitchen slash outbuilding. A few of these concerned citizens began to tell Judge Kanosh about the captive people, promoting the judge to politely ask permission to Dr. Lollaree to have the slaves removed and be taken to safety. It is reported that Dr. Lollaree replied, there are those who would be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concerns of other people. As the flames began to spread, Judge Kenosh gave orders to break down the doors. The scene was reported as horrific. Lollary's victims were said to be mutilated, with some suspended by the neck and other extremities stretched and torn. Judge Kenosh, accompanied by a few other citizens, discovered two enslaved incarcerated victims with a freed. One of the victims was wearing an iron collar very large and heavy, and was chained with iron by their feet. Days after the fire was reported, one of the slaves who had been removed from the residence did not survive. Bones were said to have been excavated from Madame Dauphine's courtyard after the fire. It was said that one set of the bones were those of a young enslaved girl that Madame Dauphine had chased straight out of a window allowing the young girl to fall to her death and then buried her on the property. Some of the facts of this horrendous crime may have been embellished over the years. Whatever it is, make no mistake that horrific dark secrets were housed on the mansion on Royal Street. And perhaps some secrets will remain just that. Secrets. Amid the mayhem and flames, Madame Delphine's enslaved coachman brought her carriage around, and Delphine stepped into it with privilege and irritating confidence. The mob was angry and stunned. It is said that the emotional mob tried desperately to hold the horseman and snatch her from the carriage, so the coachman used his whip and plunged the horses forward, escaping. Madame Delphine was never seen in the flesh again on Royal Street. She disappeared into the night's darkness. People say she now haunts the site of her old home on Royal Street. Every night, tourists stop in front of the old home to take a photo or hear its story on one of the city's many ghost tours. People keep coming to this location because of its intriguing darkness and its stories of haunts. Before the 20th century, the average pedestrian was often haunted with offensive sights and smells, and in the years after the Civil War, New Orleans was one of the largest, grossest, smelliest, and deadliest cities in America. The city's gutters, drainage canals, and streets in 1880 were littered with waste, including human and animal. Dirty, stagnant water could be found everywhere. Although the Department of Public Works was responsible for maintaining drainage, the lack of elevation inside the city meant the water had nowhere to go, and workers cleaned the gutters and canals by shoveling muck onto the streets only to have it washed back during the next storm. Drinking water came from cisterns because well water was unsanitary, and city water from the New Orleans Waterworks Company was dispersed straight from the Mississippi River. These water sources could easily become contaminated, leading to a host of gastrointestinal illnesses and transmission of diseases such as dysentery, cholera, typhoid, and yellow fever. 
New Orleans was a city of epidemics, and yellow fever was the worst, with outbreaks occurring almost annually after 1825. It was thought to be caught by miasma, humid air acting on filthy, undrained soil. The theory led residents to burn tar and shoot cannons into the air as a preventative measures to purify the air. Another idea, known as importation theory, held that the disease was spread by contact with individuals who came to the city aboard ships and the railway system. This belief led to strong anti-immigrant rhetoric. Mosquitoes, which were discovered at the turn of the 20th century to be the actual cause of the transmission, found a perfect breeding ground in the city's hazardous drainage system. But in the 19th century, these misconceptions meant that the real problem went unnoticed, while the disease returned again and again during the hot summer months. In 1878, the community was shocked when a devastating yellow fever epidemic originated in New Orleans and spread as far as Memphis, killing about 20,000 people across the Mississippi River Valley. Upriver towns and neighboring Gulf Coast cities like Mobile shut down all the travel to New Orleans, closing trade with the city at the first hint of disease. And this took its toll. When yellow fever broke out again in New Orleans in 1905, city leaders were armed with the knowledge that the disease was spread by mosquitoes, thanks to the discovery made by U.S. Army researchers in Cuba five years earlier. Citizens were ordered to eliminate any stagnant water and to cover their cisterns, thus preventing breeding areas for mosquitoes. A quarantine was also imposed to keep people in their homes. It marked the last outbreak of yellow fever on North American soil. The time to call New Orleans America's most plague-ridden city was over. However, the Pharmacy Museum still offers tourists a way to understand the impact of pharmacy and disease. The building was the former residence of Louis J. Delfijo Jr., who was the first person to pass a pharmacy licensing exam after it was introduced. This would have made his pharmacy the first one in the United States to be run on the basis of proven adequacy. The building also has a dark past. In 1855, Delfijo sold it to Fletus Dupas and her husband, Dr. Joseph Dupas. Dr. Dupas lived in the pharmacy until he died from syphilis in 1867. He was rumored to practice medicine while experimenting on slaves. He was trying to find a cure for several ailments from syphilis to yellow fever. Dr. Dupas was rumored to perform these deadly experiments quite often and randomly. The unlucky ones died from his experiments. People began to speculate that when Dr. Dupas' patients died, he would have a carriage waiting at the back, ready to transport the remains into the dark of night. The pharmacy museum is open to the public. It's said to be haunted by Dr. Dupas and his former patients. It's a wonderful place to visit. The museum is well curated and welcoming. The space definitely has heavy feelings associated with it. It's a must for dark tourists. Not only did disease abound in the city, the streets of New Orleans have a dangerous and violent past. Over the years, the streets have been home to vice and tragedy. Killers have walked through the streets of New Orleans virtually unnoticed. New Orleans has seen several serial killers over its history. One of the last serial killers in New Orleans was the Bayou Strangler. Roland Joseph 
Dominique. He raped and murdered at least 23 men and boys in Louisiana between 1997 and 2006. In 2023, Louisiana is said to have an average of 344 serial killers. It's no wonder that New Orleans has a dark and violent history. However, the most celebrated killer of New Orleans is the Axeman. Depicted in works of fiction, art, and even on the popular TV series, American Horror Story. The Axeman of New Orleans was an unidentified American serial killer active in New Orleans and surrounding communities including Gretna from May 1918 to October 1919. Press reports during the height of the public panic about the killings mentioned similar murders as early as 1911, but recent researchers have called these reports into question. The Axeman was never identified and the murders remain unsolved. These are just some of the words that the Times-Picayune newspaper received via letter on March 14, 1990, that promised another attack. Quote, Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you New Orleanians and you foolish police call the Axeman. He went on to say, undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night at will, and I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, next Tuesday, March 19th, 1919, I am going to pass over New Orleans in my infinite mercy. I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I, I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all devils, in the nether regions that every person shall be speared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of you people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. End quote. People still walk through the crimes of the Axeman on tours of the Garden District. French Quarter Phantoms, a tour company, offers a true crime tour that gives you a closer look at this infamous legend of New Orleans. We're coming to the end of this episode, but before we do, we recommend a visit to the Museum of Death in the French Quarter at 227 Delphine. This is a must for any dark tourist. The museum is filled with one-of-a-kind artifacts and memorabilia all on the topic of death with a large collection of items associated with serial killers. Stay tuned for the next episode. We're not done with New Orleans yet. New Orleans has a lot of dark history and stops for the dark tourist and enthusiast. So stay tuned for another New Orleans episode featuring Hurricane Katrina, cemeteries, and vampires. Be sure to check us out at CuriousTwins.com for more episodes, events, and tours. You can also follow us at Curious Twins Paranormal on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. 
even if you never get to visit the locations we share. We hope you enjoy learning about these locations as much as we love sharing them. We're looking forward to the next episode of Curious Travels with Fred and Stephen. If you're curious, join us. We appreciate the company. <laughs>